Amen. Well, I wanted to mention one thing before we uh, look into the scripture here this morning, and that is that we have, starting this week, the Gospel Academy starting back up. Um, we have, uh, actually, we're going to put something up here for the Gospel Academy. Um, wanted to give you kind of an overview of uh, the Gospel Academy and what this is. Some of you may not know what it is. This is our sort of teaching arm for Solana Community Church, and it's not intended to be something that you go to all the time, but they're kind of like seminars. Um, we really want people to be in home group mainly, but you go to these seminars so that you can be trained and equipped for when you're in your home group and when you're ministering to each other. So there are four core courses in the Gospel Academy. Uh, the first one's the Gospel, the second one's the Bible. We've done both of those uh, numerous times already. We're going to be doing them again. But starting this Wednesday night, we're going to be launching the first iteration of the third course, which is called Theology. And we're going to be going through uh, all kinds of topics. In fact, if you could go uh, to the next slide. Um, these are some of the topics we're going to be going through in this course. The Doctrine of God, the Doctrine of Humanity, Doctrine of Redemption, Doctrine of the Church, Doctrine of the Future. And then uh, it's going to be very practical, though. It's not just going to be heady. Uh, it's going to be uh, tied to pathways for spiritual growth as well. So if you go to the next slide, here are some of the topics that are going to be included. Not, not all of them, but some of the ones that might interest you. Uh, attributes of God, the Trinity, providence and prayer, how they relate together, uh, creation and science, uh, stewardship, humankind, man, woman, image of God, sin, uh, election, conversion, justification, adoption, all these big terms that maybe you've heard about but you've wondered what they, what they mean. Um, the virtues, joy, faith, love, humility, patience, the purpose and nature of the church, the gifts of the Spirit, um, the return of Christ, judgment, hell, heaven, and then, like I say, these pathways for growth. So it's all going to be tied into to how we go. So um, that's a lot. It's a 12-week course. It's going to be 7.30 on Wednesday nights and meeting at the uh, Cedars Room, which is uh, on 1029 Solano Avenue. Uh, that's where our offices are. We have a Cedars Room there. And so uh, if you're interested in learning more about it, I've got some syllabi up here. It's got all the, the each week and, and what's that? Yeah, that's what you call it. It's a piece of paper that lists out everything that we're going to be doing in the course. Uh, on the front of the back. Is that, does that sing a little more? <clears throat> All right. So these are available for you. Come and talk to me afterwards. And uh, if you want to register, that would really help us. People have already been registering. So if you're, hope, if you're intending to come, uh, go ahead and register. And if you want to come and just check it out for the first time, absolutely fine. Don't feel like you're committing to the whole time. You know, we can, you can do a test drive on the Gospel Academy. That's fine. Good. Okay. Well, we're going to open up to Ephesians today. We're in this series on uh, what's new uh, the Bible has a lot to say about newness. In the New Testament, there are all kinds of uses of the term new, and we kind of did a word study on the term new and asked the question, uh, how is this word used throughout the New Testament? Came up with a bunch of, of different uh, texts where it's used, and this is a time when we are sort of thinking about, uh, thinking about you know, I'm going to fix this once and for all, and I know how to do it. It's called buttoning up your shirt. There we go. Um, this is a time when we're thinking about newness because we're going into the new year and some of you probably have made New Year's resolutions and, and there are things that you want to accomplish in 2013. And as we're looking at these texts, what we're really seeing is there are all kinds of wonderful spiritual possibilities available to us in 2013. Things that God might do in us and through us uh, for His glory and for our transformation. And those are associated to uh, the things that are happening in us because of the, the gospel, which is the good news 
the newness of God's redeeming work in the world. And so we're going to explore that together a bit. Um, This is uh, going to be in Ephesians 4, uh, verse 17. So if you'd open there uh, with me, Uh, if if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We'd love to give one to you. Um, we've got plenty of them, and uh, you can take this Bible home with you. It's on page 838 in that particular Bible. Now, in this text, we're going to be looking at the new self. Today, we're talking really about growth, and, and the doctrine, the, the theological term that, that goes with this is sanctification. We're talking about sanctification. I'm going to explore, explain that a little bit more later. I'll describe it as we get into the text. But uh, let me give you a little background on the book of Ephesians first. Uh, The book of Ephesians was written to strengthen the churches, and uh, uh, Paul wrote this not just to one church in particular, uh, it seems like he wrote it to several, and it's kind of a a clear description of uh, a number of doctrines having to do with the church, uh, and is to strengthen them. Now, here's here's the thing that I want you to to clue in on uh, with the book of Ephesians. Like many of Paul's writings, it's divided into two parts. The first part is who you are in Christ, and the second part is what you should do as a result of that truth. So scholars, uh, another big word here, they call this the indicative, uh, who you are, uh, it's it's about being uh, in Christ, it's who you are, and then the imperative, which is sort of what you should do, what you should do uh, as a result of who you are in Christ. And what we're looking at here uh, is the the second half of that, how, how we should live in response to who we are in Christ. This is where the doctrine of sanctification falls in. The word sanctification means to make holy, to make holy. And in your walk with God, let me just kind of back up a step. You know, the way it works is is Jesus goes to the cross and dies for our, the forgiveness of our sins. At some point, we recognize that we need a Savior. We need to be forgiven of our sins that we've turned away from God and we've not lived in the way He intended us to live. So we come to Jesus Christ in faith. We place our faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and as Lord. And the result of that is that we are cleansed of our sin and reconciled to God, brought back into sonship or daughterhood with under God so that we can then live forever in His presence. Now, in this world, before we die, what is triggered when we place our faith in Christ is a process of transformation wherein we become more and more like Christ as God works in us. And that process is called the big word sanctification. And that's what we're talking about today. Um, Paul's going to use a metaphor about putting on new clothing putting on new clothing. That's what it's like to to become more like Christ over time. Now, we're never going to become uh, perfect in this life. It's going to be a process that goes until we die, but it's also not to be a stagnant process where we just change a little bit and and then we just sort of wait till we die and then we're finally made whole in the presence of God. Now, the tricky thing about sanctification, about being made holy by God is is this question of who drives the sanctification process. Is it us? Do we try hard to make ourselves like Jesus? Or does God drive the process in us? That's kind of the tricky piece. And and we're going to come back to that and talk about that a little bit after we read through the text. So chapter 4, verse 17 starts with this. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk 
as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Now, when Paul is talking about the Gentiles here, he's really talking about their culture and their way of thinking. He's saying that when a person comes to Christ, everything changes in the way you look at the world. Uh, You have a a new North Star, and and so everything takes shape around that. And and when you don't have that, then the world looks different. And the Gentile culture, which is not centered on Christ, ends up having a different kind of a feel and, and sense to it than the, the new culture, the redeemed culture, built on Christ and his redemption. Now, um, when I was uh, in my 20s and, and headed off to seminary, I'd grown up in a very secular kind of background and um, uh, I got this call to ministry and everything happened really fast. Uh, and, and, and I found myself in this seminary that was uh, very intense and very good and I felt kind of like a fish out of water. In fact, um, the reason I, I thought of it is I was there this week back in Chicago, and I was walking across the campus. We were, I was there for some meetings uh, with our denomination, and I was walking across the campus, and I started to feel those feelings that I remember feeling when I first got to seminary. And you've got to understand, uh, and some of you may feel this way sometimes in church. When I got to seminary, I knew nothing almost. I failed the Old Testament entrance, entrance exam. Uh, I didn't know who King Solomon was. And I'm in with all these people who just, you know, they love Jesus. They've been serving and walking with Jesus for years and years and years. And I felt totally out of place. Uh, and, and some of you probably feel that way sometimes in church. You walk in and, and you're, you, you think that everybody has the Bible memorized and knows everything about God. And you know you don't. And so you feel all self-conscious about that. And you're, you're kind of struggling with that. And the reality is that we're all a wreck. Right? We're all a mess, and we're just trying to kind of work this out together. Um, but you don't, you don't see that when you walk in, right? And I didn't see that when I was in seminary. And, and, and it was so funny because I'm walking across campus, and I'm actually feeling those emotions again. And, and, and this is, what, 15 years later or 14 years later. And so I started to, to process through. I was like, wait, no, I don't have to think that way. Wait, you know, and it was really interesting. And I remember one thing in particular. Um, when we first got there, one of the things that they love to do at this seminary is they would make you grade your own papers. Now, for a secular guy who was very competitive, that is the definition of torture. Because uh, I'd be sitting there in front of my paper, and it was all very subjective oftentimes, and I'd be trying to grade this thing. And the competitive juices would start flowing, and I would want to get the A, and I would want to write down, you know, that, oh, that's close enough, you know. And I just remember this just torment inside of me because there were so many competing forces. Uh, because I was, in a sense, like the, the text says, I was steeped in the Gentile culture, in a sense. I remember one time <laughs> we were grading, and there's this older guy sitting next to me, you know. I mean, he was like this close to Jesus, I think. Um, and... <clears throat> He just looks over at me, and he sees me just like sweating and anguish trying to grade my paper. And I, and I mark right something that's, you know, really questionable. And, and he just shakes his head, you know, just looking at me. And I just remember this shame washing over me and just horrible feelings. And so, uh, you, you know, this is, this is how, this, that was me steeped in the Gentile culture, right? The culture that's not centered on Christ and the result of that is I had these competing forces were at work inside of me, and they hadn't been untangled yet. And Paul's sort of calling that out. He's saying, that's one way to live, but you've been called to something different. Verse 18, they, the gent- those steeped in the Gentile culture, are darkened in their understanding, 
alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Intense words, I know. Um, And I'll say something about that in a minute. But first, I want to point out in verse 18, there's kind of a two-step process here. We see this all throughout Scripture. And that is that your mind shapes your actions. It starts really in your mind and what you think about yourself and what you think about God. And when that gets right, then the stuff on the outside starts to be changed. And it can go either way. If you're thinking ungodly things in your head or, or, or you're not thinking about it the way God would have you, then, then that has negative results. If you get your thinking right on target with God, then that has positive, that has positive results. If you want to change, start with the mind. And then as the verse says, the mind is accessible through a soft heart, which we'll come back to a little bit later. Verse 19, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now, at this point, listening to Paul, you know, you're thinking, wow, this guy's kind of intense, isn't he? Um, this kind of this sweeping judgment of this entire culture and all of the people steeped in it. Um, and he starts to sound, uh, and, and here I really am going to use a, a different word, um, Steve. Um, he, he starts to sound, you writing it down? Ready? I'm going to actually put it up later too. He starts to sound priggish is the proper word. Now, that's not a swear word. I know it sounds like a swear word. I thought many times as I was writing it this week that I was writing a swear word, but it's not a swear word. Um, and and, and a, a prig, um, well, I'll then define that a little bit later. It's, it's somebody who, who, who looks with superiority on others. And if you were, if you were to think, if you were just to extract Paul's writing uh, from here from the rest of his testimony, you might think about that. But we'll come back to that in a minute. Verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness." Righteousness and holiness in that last verse is more about what you display to the world in this particular context than your standing before God. Oftentimes in the Bible we talk about righteousness and holiness in terms of Christ having made us righteous and so we stand before God righteous. In this particular verse, it's more about the character traits of righteousness and holiness being displayed through us to the world around us, more of an ethical kind of understanding of righteousness and holiness, which again, well, we have a lot to come back to today, don't we? And we'll come back to that. Okay, uh, as we untangle this text, uh, there are first of all two tensions I want to try and uh, untangle a little bit, two tensions in this text, and then lastly, I'm going to talk about how we put on the new self, the new clothing. So those are the two moves we're going to make today. First of all, let's talk about these two tensions. The first one is between priggishness, there's that word, and purity. Now, let me define what a prig is. I keep, it's not a swear word. Um, a prig is a self-righteously moralistic person who behaves as if superior to others. And if you were to extract Paul's writing there, those verses, you might feel like that's, you might put that tone on Paul. But when you look at the person of Paul throughout the New Testament, 
and you look at the writings of Paul, you see that that's very much not the case. Uh, if, you, if you put him in context, um, you would see that Paul's an exceedingly humble man who, who owns his sin all over the place. In fact, he says, I'm the chief of, of sinners. And so, so Paul is not speaking here out of an air of superiority as he looks at the Gentile culture. He's not speaking as if to say, oh, oh, I'm so great that I'm not that. He's just merely pointing out a reality. And that reality is, is that when Jesus Christ becomes your true north, everything's different. And when he's not, it's something else. It's a simple fact of life. When Christ becomes number one, the way you look at everything else changes. When he's not number one, then something else is in that place, and the world looks very different. It's, it's much in the same, I'm sure, I'm sure, right, even today, this morning, um, there are coaches preparing for the Super Bowl, and they're asking themselves questions about what's the right way to play, um, and they're saying to each other, no, that's the wrong way to do it. Don't do it that way. We've got to do it this way. They're just discerning what's right and what's, what's wrong. And that's the tone in which Paul is, is saying this. It's, it's kind of like taking that same attitude in the spiritual realm. What's the right way to live, and what's the wrong way to live according to God's plan? Now, the fear that we have oftentimes is if, that we, if we love purity, if we seek righteous living and holiness, then people will think that we're priggish. There's that word. That we're, we're trying to be superior. See, that's the tension. And so what happens, I think, oftentimes is we, we pull back from displaying righteous qualities in the world because we don't want to come off as being the prig, right? The one who stands in superiority over the others. And we do that in the workplace. We do that in our neighborhoods. You know, we don't want to be that guy or that woman. And so we, we pull back from displaying the qualities of righteousness and holiness. But here's the interesting thing. They're, they're really not at odds with each other. I'm convinced that had you been around Jesus Christ, I know you would have seen somebody who lived in righteousness and purity and holiness. But I don't think you would have felt an overtone of superiority coming from him. In other words, it's possible to love purity without being a prig, without being superior to others. And so that's the tension we have to make sure that we're, we're untangling in this. It's possible to love, to love purity without being priggish. So that's the first one. The second one in this text, is trying versus receiving. Is transformation on the other side of having received the gospel and placing your faith in Jesus Christ, is the transformation of the Christian life a result of our trying really hard or our receiving something from God? How do those two go together? What's our responsibility and what's God's responsibility? It's a perennial question, and I think oftentimes we don't talk about sanctification because we're afraid if we start talking about sanctification, it's going to feel like it's all up to us and trying hard, and, and, and that becoming like Jesus is sort of what we have to do on our own. One of the best metaphors that I've heard, and I think this was first given to me from John Ortberg, who's a, a pastor on the peninsula and writer, and he used the metaphor of trying to cross the Atlantic Ocean. I'm sure some of you heard me talk about this before. 
If becoming like Christ, if, if sanctification is like crossing the Atlantic Ocean, there are a couple of options on how you do this. You could, you could set off and try to do it in your own strength and try to row all the way across the Atlantic Ocean, right? Now, most of us would not make it. We would die partway across of exhaustion and hunger and, 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 and dehydration. We just, we're not capable of rowing. In the same way, we're not capable of becoming like Jesus in our own strength, okay? So then the, the response to that is, okay, well, if I can't do it in my own strength, I'll just throw up my hands and I'll just sort of see what happens. So picture you in a rowboat floating across the Atlantic Ocean, just randomly, wherever the currents take you. Probably not going to make it either, right? So neither of those work. If we, if we fully abdicate and just sort of sit in the boat and let it go wherever it goes, according to the current, we're not going to make it. Um, if we try and row in our own strength, we're not going to make it. So there's a third way that Ortberg points out, and he says, what if you have a sail? And you throw up a sail so that you can catch the wind that will carry you across the Atlantic Ocean. Now, you've done something. You've thrown up the sail, but you're not powering the boat. The boat is powered by something outside of you, which is the wind. And it's a great metaphor for how the sanctification process works. We cooperate, cooperate with God um, by throwing up a sail, in a sense. There are many ways we do that. We, we gather in community to worship. We gather in home group, home group to study. We open our Bibles. We pray. All these are ways to throw up the sail. But it's God who brings the empowering to bring about the changes in our lives. There's actually a similar metaphor to that in the text here. And it's the one about putting on clothing. When we ask ourselves the question, how do you change? How do you become like Jesus Christ? Paul's answer in this text is to, to put on the new self. To put on the new self like a garment, like it's a piece of clothing. So, interestingly, it's as if Christ in his sacrifice has cleansed us. And now that we've been cleansed, we need to put on the new clothing that matches who we are having been cleansed. Do you ever get out of the shower and you put on dirty clothes again? You ever had to do that? It's awful, isn't it? Um, you don't want to do that. You've been cleansed. You get out of the shower. You want to put on the new clothing. But you don't have to knit the new clothing. You don't have to sew the new clothing. The implication is you, you put on what's been given to you. You tie this back to the, in, in, in Genesis 3, when, when uh, Adam and Eve sinned, what does it say about what God did? He clothed them in garments that, that he made. So it's God's work to clothe us in this. We, we put on the clothing, but he makes it. He makes it possible. And so you've got this, this, this tension between receiving and trying Really, it's we cooperate with God as he works through the Holy Spirit to bring about the changes that occur in our lives, leading us to become more like Christ. So, let me just summarize the two tensions. It's possible to pursue purity without priggishness. And it's possible to participate in sanctification without carrying the load on your own. That's kind of fundamental things we need to understand then if we're going to answer this question, okay, how then do we go ahead and put on the clothing? How are we sanctified? How do we move forward in growth in Christ-likeness so that we're displaying the traits of righteousness and holiness to the world? 
And that's what I want to finish with this morning. And there's four things in this text that tell us uh, about how to put on that new clothing. The first one is in verse 17. Resolve to be transformed. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. There is a place for imperative speech, for commands, for resolution, saying, I'm not going to do this anymore. There is a place for that in the Scripture. Okay? Uh, I was with uh, uh, some, some men this, this week or late last week and uh, all around my age or so. And, and from an outward sense, you know, these would be men who look like they have life together. You know, I mean, you wouldn't fault them as being bad citizens or <clears throat> um, being terrible towards their families or <clears throat> any of the like. And yet we sat around the table as we were talking and what, what came out is this resolve not to remain stagnant in our faith, but to grow and to keep, to seek, to seek continued growth uh, in the knowledge that even though maybe we're not axe murderers or we're taking care of our family or whatever, there is still so much to be absorbed. So much growth needing to take place. And, and, and that's what I see sort of coming out of this text. It's that continued resolve that we're not going to just rest and say, oh, we've arrived. You know, I'm better than my coworker, at least. Or I'm better than my neighbor, or, you know, everything's going okay. But there would this be this, this deep hunger and this resolve to continue to grow in Christ-likeness. That's what Paul is calling us to in this text. And it's one of the core values of this church, transformation. That we wouldn't just sort of say, okay, uh, you know, let's maybe hopefully experience some transformation once every five or ten years together. But no, it's a normal part of who we are. Being changed by the gospel is a regular part of following Christ. So that's the first one. It's a resolve to be transformed. The second one is to soften your heart. Verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. What is a callus? A callus is a a protective chunk of skin on your hand or wherever um, to keep you from... Uh, experiencing the pain that comes you know, with some sort of friction or something like that. But what does a callus do? It, it also removes sensitivity, doesn't it? And in the spiritual walk, the Bible talks about the possibility of us becoming calloused in our hearts so that the sensitivity is removed. And what Paul is saying is that's poison to the process of sanctification. If there is a callousness in our hearts... It's poison to the process of sanctification. The less sensitive we are to our own sinfulness, the more we will allow our selfish desires to guide us and to lead us and to direct us in life. And so Paul is essentially reminding us to rip off that callous on the heart. To humble ourselves. To be honest about who we really are before God and and potentially before your brothers and sisters. To confess sin. To pray. To fast. 
There is little that rips the callus off your heart like a day of fasting and waiting on the Lord and the weakness that comes with that. And that place of discomfort and weakness and acknowledgement of our own sin, that place becomes the opening through which the Holy Spirit can move to bring about the transformation that we so long for. Soften your heart. The third one is renew your mind. Verse 23. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. I love the way this is written. It kind of caused me to take a step back. And I don't even know that I fully understand it. We talked about this already. There's this two-step process. If you want to see transformation, it starts with your mind. So learn more about God. Learn more about, understand more who you are in the light of who God is. That's partly why the Gospel Academy is so important to get these truths right so that our minds can be... We can't stop there, but it's really important that we have an understanding of who God is and who we are in the light of who He is. So we need to be renewed in our mind, but it says be renewed in the spirit of your minds, which is an interesting interesting way to speak about it. Um, There's something about raw horsepower in terms of your mind, the ability to think and, and... And some people are really smart, and we live in the Bay Area, so we're all really smart. Um, And so we have lots of horsepower mentally, right? We think we do. Um, And and a lot of us do. A lot of you do. I don't don't struggle with this problem so much. But, um, you know, we have this horsepower, this mental... And and you can mistake the, the, the smarts and the intelligence for the spirit that's behind it. So we know that it's possible to be very intelligent and yet still to do evil things. Some very smart people in the history of the world have done terrible, awful things because of the spirit that underlies the intelligence, right? But So the the intelligence part is important, and knowing God is important, but we have to, what this text says, is we have to be renewed in the spirit that underlies that. What is the goal of the the intelligence that we've been given? What is is the direction of it? And so um, if, if we find ourselves in that category where we're always being put forward because we're very smart, and, and, and people want us to study things and do things and research things. And, you know, if we're in that category, we have to be very careful that we don't put our confidence in the, the intelligence itself, but that we are careful to think about the spirit that underlies that intelligence. And what is, what is it being used for? And what is it directed towards? Very important. And so we need to be re- not just renewed in our mind in terms of understanding who God is, but also understanding and, and carefully thinking about the motivation behind um, our thoughts. So having said that, the learning is good. I don't want to undermine that at all. Learning is good and very important and a critical part of putting on the new self. And so come to the Gospel Academy. Go to your home groups and come and worship so we can continue to learn together. And then the fourth one is simply this. Let righteousness be manifest. Let righteousness be manifest and holiness to be manifest in us. Very important. There's an interesting process here, uh, and that is, you maybe have experienced this, um, when you're in an environment that is Gentile in the sense that it's not centered around Christ. Um, It's a metaphor there. Um, But when you're in that environment and you are living what God's called you to live, there's a couple of people respond to you in, in, in a sort of stepwise process. They're, usually their first step is to try and dissuade you from being that person, right? See, 
my wife tells a story uh, when she was in, I think, elementary school, and, and uh, you know, she loved Jesus, and just like the other kids trying to get her to swear, right? Um, like, just for long periods of time, and doing every kind of backflip to try and get her to swear. Now, you know, that's not the worst thing in the world, uh, but, you know, at that age, that for her, that was part of following Jesus, and so um, there's this sense in which when you manifest, when you display the righteousness of God, people's first reaction is to try and dissuade you from doing it. And there are a lot of reasons probably for that because um, they're probably convicted by it sometimes. Um, and, and there's something maliciously enticing about bringing somebody down. There's, there's all kinds of reasons for that. But you find that if you push through that first phase then people sort of accommodate themselves with who you are. That you really love Jesus and, and you're just going to stand for some things and you're going to push through and you're, ju- you're just not going to compromise on th- some things. And if you push through that first stage, then oftentimes what happens is that they, they accept you finally for who you are. It might be kind of hard. You might, have to, you might get some pushback in that first stage. But in that second phase, they accept you for who you are and now you've kind of created some cognitive dissonance, some disequilibrium in their minds, and they're start, they have to deal with, well, why is this person different? And if you humbly proclaim the gospel, uh, and it's only because of Christ's work in you that there's a change, then there's a, a, a process in the third stage where they start to consider for themselves what the gospel might do. See, if we don't push through that first phase, and we let them dissuade us into unrighteousness and and you know, then we miss out that opportunity for the proclamation of the gospel through our lives as we display the righteousness that God brings in and through us to the world around us. I mean, it's a little bit like if you had a doctor and the doctor didn't want to make the patients feel bad. So before going to work on the, on the stab victim, you know, the doctor stabs himself so that he can go work on the, the stab wound victim just so that to uh, make sure the stab wound victim doesn't feel bad because he's not the only person. Uh, who has a stab wound, right? We, we don't have to do that in, in our walk in the world. We don't have to make ourselves just like every. We do have to be honest about our own sinfulness and that it's only by God's grace. But we don't have to sort of let go of the righteous work that God's doing inside of us so that we can be like the people around us. Do you understand that? It's, it's really important that we, we push through that and let God display his righteousness through us as uh, he enables it to happen. And you think of people like, I mean, Mother Teresa, if you've read, her, read about Mother Teresa, um, she's an intense woman, right? She's an intense woman. And, and you would have you felt being around her, you know, you would have felt a little conviction maybe at times, and you would have felt that intensity. Um, and yet people at some point just said, that's who she is, and accepted it. And when they did that, they started to invite her into the halls of power and to speak to presidents and to pray in front of presidents. And, and, and she, so they just sort of accepted who she was. And once they did, you know, she got this hearing that she otherwise would not have had. And I think in some small sense, that's what God wants to do with every single one of us, is to put us in that place where we're going to get that hearing. But it's going to be uncomfortable because we're going to be displaying righteousness and holiness and people aren't going to like it. And, and, and that's okay, though. Just push through until they accept that you're really serious about this Jesus thing and you're not going to be dissuaded. And you're going to just manifest it as God empowers you to do it. Now, 
we are displaying, we are to display the image of God in us in this way. And, and, and I think some of you feel like, yeah, someday I'll be displaying the image of God in me and that'll be great. But I just want to tell you, you're probably displaying it a lot more than you realize. And this is how I know, because a God has begun a good work in you. And that work is already bearing fruit. And you may not see it, but God is using you in your environments, wherever you are, to display his righteousness and his holiness. And again, you may see all the things that are wrong about you. But I'm telling you, God is using you in those places. Now, at the same time, you may feel like you have a further, you, you need to grow some more. You want to be more transformed. And the answer to that is to go back to the beginning just in the text, to resolve, to be transformed, to soften your heart, to renew the mind, study some more, and to let the righteousness be manifest through you. If God is calling you to grow to that next level, that's the process. Go back to the beginning. But let's just be you're never going to feel like you've arrived in this life. So stop waiting for that day when you're going to feel like I'm all that as a Christian and I've got it all figured out. And, and, and it's easy because it's not going to arrive until heaven. So, so just let it go. And be who you are right now. Let the righteousness of God be manifest in you and keep seeking to grow and grow and be transformed by his empowerment. Throw up your sail so that he can blow you across the path of sanctification. Back in Chicago this week, and uh, I don't know if you know this, but the Chicago River used to run the opposite direction used to run towards Lake Michigan. And it was so polluted and foul that they called it the Stinking River. And when the Great Chicago Fire happened, it actually happened on one side of the river, and there was so much junk, flammable stuff in the river that part of the reason it crossed the river was the river caught on fire. It was just such a cesspool, this this river uh, in the middle of Chicago. In fact... If something weren't changed, the amount of disease in those years before they reversed the flow, people were dying in the tens of thousands in Chicago because all of the, the junk was flowing into Lake Michigan and it was, it was going into places where they would get their drinking water on its way. And so people were getting all kinds of diseases and just sickness and dying and dying and dying. And, and, and they actually said that if they didn't clean up that river, Chicago would not exist. It would not exist today. It wouldn't survive. That's how rancid the river was. And some people came along, engineers, and they called one of the greatest engineering feats uh, of the last you know, century or more that they were able to, by a series of canals, and they had to move more earth than the Panama Canal or something like this, and they were able to reverse the flow of the Chicago River. So now it went from Lake Michigan the other direction. And what that did is it just cleaned out the entire river. And the result of that was that the city began to flourish again. And the river uh, no longer was, it, now it's still, I, w- I mean, I've been near it. I, I wouldn't want to go swimming in it or anything like that. Um, but, it, you know, it wasn't kill, it's not killing people in the same way. And so the river flowing in that direction, um, and, and, and it was purifying the city in a sense. And it's a great metaphor for the process of sanctification. Because God wants to reverse the flow in our hearts. That's what Jesus is doing in you and in us. 
And it's an individual thing, so he reverses the flow in our hearts, and we become different, and we become purifying to our families and to the people around us. And then collectively, he reverses the flow of our collective heart. That's why as a church, we have to continue to try and seek the Lord together and to be obedient together because he reverses the flow. And as we're purified and sanctified, then we have an impact on the city. We have an impact on the city. And so the stakes are high. And important things are involved in this process of sanctification. But God is doing it. And our place is to cooperate, to throw up that sail, to let him sanctify us. For his glory, for the sake of the people close to us, and for the larger community around us. Would you pray with me? Lord, accelerate the process you've begun in us individually and as a community. Help us not to be ashamed of any righteousness that exudes from us. Help us never to be superior to others. Always to be giving you the glory for any change you brought in us. And Lord, would you do something miraculous in this town and in this region as you sanctify our hearts and make us more like Christ, as you renew your image inside of us, as you redeem our sinfulness and our brokenness and untangle the way we think about ourselves and you and the world, would you do something miraculous in this place? And that is, would you manifest your glory in the gospel to the people around us, that they might come to know you in saving faith, and that this place might be transformed uh, from the inside out that the poor would be taken care of, that the lost would be found, that the hurting would be healed, that the broken would be bound up because of the work that you're doing inside of us by the power of Christ. We ask it not because we could ever make it happen, but because you are a big God. And it's fitting to ask you such big requests. So we come to you by the blood of Christ, and ask you to do this work in our midst. In Christ's name, amen.